everyone. Welcome back to This Lesbian Ship is Intense. I'm Katie. And I'm V. And we are back today to talk to you all about our favorite show, First Kill. And um, unfortunately, not under the best of circumstances. Yeah, I was going to say, it's still our favorite show, regardless of whatever hot mess garbage, lies, bullshit that anyone Netflix wants to say. Yeah, we're, you know, feeling lots of feelings across the range of feelings. Like, if we were to pull out a feelings wheel, we would just, like, point aimlessly all around the feelings wheel on the negative side, I guess. <laughs> well, no, I say but... I would say that it would still go on the positive because then, like, even with, like, sadness, I'm still finding moments of, like, looking at things, like, tenderly, like, oh, I love this. And then it cries and then it's anger. Oh, true, true, true. Like, there are some moments where I'm like, oh, there's so much I love about this show. Or, oh, this fandom is hilarious. Like, I have had lots of laughter still through my anger just because everybody's so fucking funny. Um, yeah, definitely. But, <laughs> like, you know, a lot's happened. Obviously, First Kill got canceled earlier this week. We still obviously don't know how to process that. Uh we're sad, we're angry, we're all the feelings, and we have some really special content for you this week. Before the show was canceled, we interviewed the magnificent showrunner, Felicia D. Henderson. Yes, so we decided that we, this was like too good, you know, it was too good a conversation, it's too good of a content, and that we absolutely still need to share this with you all, and I really hope that you guys enjoy it, um, and still revel in all of the amazingness of First Kill uh, with us and Felicia. Yeah, I feel like we had a great conversation with her, and... Um, we did say this on social media, but Felicia has COVID right now. And when she did this interview, she was pushing through it because she loves the show so much and wanted to talk to us about it. So please, we really hope that you enjoy this interview with her, enjoy her insights, enjoy her wisdom. We learned a lot from her. We laughed a lot with her. And it was a really great experience for the both of us. All right, everybody. So here we have with us today, Felicia D. Henderson. <laughs> Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Yeah, we're very excited here to have you with us. Um, I'm excited and... to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And the first thing that we really want to know from you is, did you have any idea there was a global lesbian army behind your show before it dropped? Oh, before it dropped? No, of course not. Before it dropped, I was like, I hope I'm not the only one who thinks this show is really amazing. <laughs> no, so no, not at all. Not at all. And to, you know, watch um, that army grow and just how passionate, uh, you know, people are about the show. It's just been so, um, so amazing and just, you know, joyful really to just see how people love it and for different reasons and hearing the specific reasons and what people respond to uh, you know it, it's been really really wonderful 
And it's like we've been joking about how it's spread through like grassroots guerrilla warfare amongst the like lesbian community <laughs> because it's like the little show that could almost it was competing with Netflix juggernaut Stranger Things Umbrella Academy and even like in that gap between those two shows it was the only show that Netflix had in the top 10 of like breakout TV shows amongst all other streaming networks. Like that's awesome. It was very awesome. I mean, you know, we were particularly the, um, the weekend that it dropped, you know, on that midnight at, at, or yeah, Friday, I guess it was. And so it's, you have the whole weekend of what's going to happen. And I just remember, looking and or people it was a lot of you know uh people texting me screenshots of netflix you know uh, and showing me but it's it was for a moment it was like number one i was like what and then it just <laughs> yeah. hung around number one two number one and two and three and in the u.s you know dropped lower in the but in the top 10 and then seeing it just hang around globally at number three um, for quite a while was just a very, very cool thing. It was a very cool thing. And so, like you said, it, it feels like the little show that, that could and hopefully continuing to grow because we're still waiting for a second, a season two pickup. So we're still dependent on that growth to show Netflix that we are not playing. <laughs> yeah, no, we're definitely not. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I remember when I remember when Imani got cast because in my little gay circle of <laughs> Twitter friends, like that mm-hmm. was like a DM from someone immediately that was like, look who got cast for the show First Kill. They're going to have like lesbians leading the show. And like all of our interests were peaked. So like we had particularly our little group of friends had been waiting for this show to drop. And um, mm-hmm. wow, what a what a way to start because. Well, you know, for. It's when you're working in it, you know, when you're just in the trenches, you don't even know what's going on. Like there's, I'm like going back now over the last year and a half, my whole life has been first kill. So I'm now going back over moments in the last year and a half and like in life and in the world and in news trying to catch up like (laughs) what's going on because like you hear news, you know, Imani's being cast and we're just going okay, there's two, you know, <laughs> right, like right. others to go. and you just, and, you know, as passionate about each character, because you want each of them to be, you know, I, I care as much about each one being the perfect actor for that particular role, so that the process went on, you know, for, for months after that is of finding everyone else. Yeah. And and so like we were pretty excited for the show to drop and then when it did, I immediately checked in and I knew that it was going to be um a lesbian couple who were going to lead the show, but I didn't know what exactly that meant cuz a lot of shows tease us and they give us a lot less than they promise. Mm. But like this mm. show right out the bat was just so so gay. I mean, we start out with a gay sex dream and could not believe that. And um we just don't really understand how anyone could not love this show. Well, um, I can't speak for those people. I don't know them, and I don't wish to. No, I'm joking. I don't don't know. You know, we feel like we feel like there's, you know, so much to offer, so 
many, you know, on so many different levels because, like, who isn't part of some family that has its own drama, you know? So if you're a part of a family, then you should be interested in this show. If you are, you know, any part of any group that has ever felt, you know, marginalized in any way or not seen or, for me, depicted in a way that's just flat, one-dimensional, you know, and and you've seen it over and over. Hopefully, you know, it's for you too. So hopefully people see themselves in this couple who in, see themselves in each of them individually in the places they hold in their family and what it is they want for their lives. How sometimes, you know, one little decision, um, like falling for the wrong person, can wreak havoc in, you know, everyone's life. And that was something we were also focused on is that everything that happens is just as a result of two people who want to be together, being together, like everything that happens, you know, comes from that. And it was, you know, very important to me that this couple, like I didn't want to just representation to me is um, not in numbers, you know, not in like, oh, we see this many black people now on TV or we see this many queer people or queer couple, whatever that is, right? But mm-hmm. that's, that's, we shouldn't count that as good representation anymore, just the quantity, the, you know, mm-hmm. but the quality. It's time to look at it for quality. And so if you're going to look at quality, then you've got to make them three-dimensional. If you're, and if you're making them three-dimensional, then if it's going to be a couple and they're going, a young couple at that, you know, everything is about how hot are you when you're that young, whatever hot is right, to right. you, <laughs> you know. So if that's the truth, then make it hot for real, you know, so that all of those things are very, very important and, you know, and, and to make it real and to try to keep defining what they see in each other. Yeah. And I think you bring up an interesting point because I feel like, you know, doing a research for this, uh, you have a pretty interesting background as a writer that lines up perfectly for this show. A lot of experience in family comedies, <laughs> genre TV. You've even worked in some shows like really intertwined in pop culture. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like um, one of the things that has been under talked about with First Kill is the family drama elements and how this is a really fun interesting family dramedy almost so was that Mm -hmm. a big was your background a big influence in in involving that in first kill and developing it that way um yes I think so you know at the time that you're doing it you don't think so much about it you know but I certainly know when I you know read Victoria's pilot um you know, and Netflix called my manager to ask if I would be interested in reading it and thinking about coming aboard to run the show and be the head writer. And um, when I read it, there really were the two things that um, drew me to it. Again, I'm really big about on representation, and it was the representation of a Black family in a space that we don't see Black families. You know, you might see one Black character as a sidekick, or a best friend, but to see a whole intact black family and all the dynamics in that family, I was interested in, you know, helping to push forward this and to normalize a black family in the supernatural genre space. 
and then and so that was one thing. And then secondarily, seeing six or not not one but two sixteen year old you know lesbian girls, and wanting to be part of making sure you know that they were also three dimensionalized um, as a person who has and has had you know sixteen year old lesbian girls in my life. Um, not only as, you know, a godmother and an aunt, but I thought about, I want in both of those cases, and particularly in that case, because I had a 16-year-old goddaughter who, you know, tried to take her life rather than come out. And Mm -hmm. so I always think about, you know, and it's really on my mind right now because we, you know, lost just yesterday on Sunday, uh, July 31st, two legends as barrier breakers in, you know, Nichelle Nichols, who was, mm-hmm. you know, played Uhura, right, on, on Star Trek, yeah. and um, Bill Russell, who was um, a, a basketball player at a, and was very much about, you know, fighting for civil rights of black basketball players when it was very unpopular to be an athlete and to dare be political you know i i hesitate to say political because i hate the idea that fighting for equality equality is somehow you know um political political stance yeah and yeah but i think about both of those you know those icons and and particularly with michelle nichols um you know as even hillary clinton said yesterday you know you have to see it to know you can achieve it Mm-hmm. And in and, and the case of Calliope and Juliet, it made me think about, well, what if my goddaughter had had them on television to normalize how she was feeling so that she didn't feel like a freak? Would mm-hmm. she still have thought, you know, I, the only option is to take my life? That doesn't mean she wouldn't have still been in pain, but maybe she would have been able to ride it out without coming to that place in her life. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know. Yeah, so that's why for me, it's like I want to be part of this show that um, puts forth these images that I know that young girls need to see. We were just going to say, you know, we get messages from fans uh, of the show all the time. And we know for a fact that Calliope and Julia have saved people's lives. Like we've had people tell us, you know, Mm. they were thinking about committing suicide and then they found Mm. this show and that started to make them feel more comfortable with themselves and make them feel connected to something and make them feel seen in a way they hadn't before. So, you know, I, we've been able to tell all along following the show, how passionate you are, but we just want you to know, like you have achieved the things you've set out to do with this show. Mm, Thank you so much for sharing that. That really, you know, touches my heart. And, you know, those are the kind of things that it's so tricky because I know that my job is first and foremost to entertain. That's what they're paying me for. And so that's what I try to think of first. But at this point in my career, I've been doing it so long for me personally, it has to be about something more than that. You know, how am I putting forth images that need to be seen? How am I saying something that needs to be said? And those are the things that it's harder, you know, to um, convince the people paying you, 
you know, rather yeah. than Netflix or, or another outlet that are also important, you know, because they are in the business to make money. And so you have to show them how you can make money and change the world. Yeah, absolutely. And this reminds me of an article that I read. Um, it was an interview that you had and you had talked about the importance of within first kill and I think in general um, to have people evaluate other people and to learn about other people from their differences rather than focusing solely on similarities and mm-hmm. after reading it it felt so obvious to me where just it felt like oh of course <laughs> but in the moment that I read it it felt so wow <laughs> you know it's funny because sometimes you know um I've had people just disagree with me so vehemently and be so personal about it. I was once on a panel where um, even the moderator, she's like, well, you know, I would be careful. We have to be careful about the words we use. It was a woman moderator. And then I was the only woman on the panel of me and four white males. And so, of course, the, the, the point of view was very much a male, you know, dominated uh, one and male point of view and white male point of view. And so, and then, you know, so it was very interesting to feel like I, to watch all of these people treat me like I'd said something wrong for saying, you know, I think that there's too much focus on, if we just focus on how, how we're all the same. And, um, you know, and I just thought, I said, well, I'm not sure that I agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm a person who always, speaks the truth if you ask me so (laughs) you know so so I had to say but because I do believe in that I do believe and it probably yes it comes from my personal point of view in my life that you know I'm I'd be bored if I just hang with a whole bunch of people who looked like sounded like me Mm -hmm. and then I know my life professionally is enriched um and so is my work you know even in hiring a writing staff if the the there's diverse opinions and experiences and you know racial and ethnic and socioeconomic differences like I believe in all of that and so how can I learn about you and how can you become less frightening to me mm-hmm. if I just you know meet you only in the places that we are the same you know where we have similarities and I think that that's exactly it is, you know, so like, as I read this, I was thinking about the American mentality in the past of being a melting pot. And then there's been a little bit of a shift where they said, well, no, for a melting pot, we're all assimilating to be the same. And we should be more like a salad, where we can appreciate the different aspects of us. And so I think that it's really great that I read that because I think so often that we think the only way for us to understand other people is for us to have a foundation of similarities. But in doing so, we neglect our differences and we treat our differences as if they are reasons that we can't be compatible and we don't have to. (laughs) No, you said it so well. You know, you said it so well. I really can't say it any better than that. So I, I think that that is right where we're like, you know, we see it in television all the time and we get tricked, if you will, into thinking, oh, that is progress. If we just see, mm-hmm. you know, let's call it a, I don't know, a, 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 a hospital drama or a legal drama 
where everyone looks the, looks different, but everyone behaves the same, which is a standard mainstream, you know, yeah. white sensibility. And so those edges of what makes every all those people who look different, what makes them interesting and actually different, those things are not addressed so that we're not celebrating, you know, cultural specificity of other people so that we get to know about it. You know, I think that that's very important that how we are different, we get to know and then we celebrate that difference and then difference is suddenly not so scary. And, you know, I think the things that you're touching on now are why V and I have connected so strongly to this show because, you know, it has, we started this podcast to advocate for queer women of color relationships on television and, you know, Mm -hmm. to get the networks to support these relationships. So this, this podcast has always felt kind of like, uh, a protest almost against power to, to get things recognized. And um, so and in our personal lives, I think we've both really connected to not only what we see on camera, but behind the camera with First Kill. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't realize how big of a deal what you've done in front of and behind the camera is like as someone who worked for a feminist organization and faced negative consequences for standing up for people of color, like just because you have a name doesn't mean in reality it's easy to execute. Oh, gosh, yeah. no. So, you know, like, so that's Katie's experience that I think is really important, not only in this show, but in so many other places with representation, but also, so for myself, um, I'm Mexican, Latina, and I work in a very white uh, agency. And um, Mm -hmm. I know that one of the things that has happened for me as I've progressed in my own career has been that not only do I want to create an environment for myself that feels safe, uh, that feels protected Mm -hmm. for myself, but it's something that I hope to create for those that come after me where I don't mind standing up and saying something that people don't want to hear if it means that it's in people's minds for the people behind me. And, um, you know, I think that in reading some of your articles, I think in speaking with Imani, I found myself very, very emotional to know what a safe and supportive environment you created, created for her, because that's not always the experience, even though it should be. And then we hear that from not only Imani, but from everyone that we've talked to or, you know, see tweet about the show or hear in interviews that you've created such a supportive environment. But it also sounds as if though you have really great boundaries and expectations. And so I think we wonder about how have you balanced that? Because that's such a thing to balance. <laughs> it is such a thing to balance. It, it is a, such a challenging thing to balance. But you know, in some ways, sometimes I call myself the great compartmentalizer. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that um, you have to, and I've had been in this position before that sometimes, and we all know this, if you are a person who tries to be, you know, kind and decent and considerate um, and, you know, lead with love and consideration, um, that there are always going to be people who need to test that. Mm -hmm. or because they've seen it, they think that means there's something to take advantage of. And then they get to meet the other Felicia. (laughs) So, you know, and and she doesn't like to come out and play, but she Mm -hmm. will. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it is. And so sometimes, and I think that I try to, when I'm starting relationships, 
you know, the professional relationships. That's why I sit down with each and every, you know, actor um, individually uh, to see so we get to know each other individually. And as part of that, I try to make it clear, you know, my job, this is my job is to, um, you know, deliver a high quality, best that I can do show. Um, and therefore, there are, I do have expectations. And, you know, so you, I try to set those in that first meeting that I am collaborative. But if you have an issue with a script, there's a deadline by which you can express that. Um, in order to that we never so that we never get on set and suddenly you have you know when we're on the clock and very expensively per hour right. you know um, you are then complaining so I'm like that won't be welcome but my door is always open and up until 24 hours before we shoot a scene you can tell me you know, anything you want. And so, of course, that means I have the job of making sure the scripts are out on time so that <laughs> they have the time to review them, right? And then they get up until 24 hours before we're shooting to tell me if they have some challenges with a script. So that's a way of setting boundaries um, up early. And, and I go, however, once we are shooting, it is too late. So, because you don't want to be, and I have been there where you're shooting and someone's like, this doesn't work for me. And then you're like, well, you just realize that. Yes. And I can't do that because that would make me, and you know, a, um, irresponsible in some ways, um, showrunner, because they are putting in my hands millions of dollars. And if I cannot manage that in a way that is, you know, proper and, and, and professional, then maybe they wonder next time if it should be me. So, um, but I feel like I can have those boundaries that I can, you know, uh, manage because that's what really a showrunner's job is, is to manage the process of, of, of making the show. I can do that and still be, kind and considerate and, you know, inclusive and collaborative um, at the same time. And that is different for every, every, you know, actor and every department head needs it something different every, you know, it's not the same for everyone. It's like having children, you know, you <laughs> can't parent every one of them the exact same way. <laughs> so yeah. it is uh, the way that I, I look at it and trying to give each person what they need because everyone needs something different. And, um, you know, and that doesn't mean it always goes perfect, but even when there's a disagreement, you're starting at a place of respect because they knew from the beginning that you cared. Right. Oh, yep. Yeah. Clear expectations at the beginning can go a long way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about teen sexuality in this show, because, um, you know, you said like teenagers, a lot of times, like it's hot and that's what people want to see. And that's how they're thinking. And that's what you're portraying on TV. 
And I think this show in particular has had some intense reactions to being too sexy or for the male gaze or being exploitive. But that's always been very hilarious to both of us because uh, I haven't heard I mean, any of that, though. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, but we always I haven't heard any of that. And you know I'm what? glad because it's like, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. And we were like, we don't even see a bra strap on screen. We're like, okay, I guess that's just a testimony to Sarah Catherine and Imani's chemistry because they don't even take their clothes off. How is it too exploitive? <laughs> It's so interesting. It's interesting for me in a lot of ways because, um, and again, you know, I come to it as a person, as a as a black woman. So, at, you know, from two two um, identities uh, that um, have been traditionally, you know, marginalized, and and so a lot of what I care about comes from that experience as a human being and that experience as a professional. Um, you know, uh, in this business and as a, a scholar, because I'm also an academic. So I look at it from all three of these points of view. And I think, like you said, it's a testimony. It is still, we call it elevated YA. It's still, mm-hmm. that's still what it is. So there's a PG-13 element to it. Like you said, there, you never even see them with their clothes off. And um, you see, you know, body parts, of course, but mostly legs. <laughs> so, it's so yes. interesting. They're legs. legs we now hands. know they have legs. legs. And hands. <laughs> they have legs and they have hands. And this is really <laughs> important. And so this is, you know, but it's at the same time, I think that it is more, you know, that you can feel that intense connection between them has to do with, great directing, has to do with great music, has to do with great acting, um, all of those things. And to say, you know, it's from a male gaze when truly there's not one man, um, you know, involved in at the decision-making level, it is created, the show's created by a lesbian woman. The pilot and second episode, um, are directed by the great Jet Wilkinson, who is a lesbian woman. Um, you know, I am a straight woman, but I am a woman. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. And then you have um, Bellatrice Productions, which is Emma Roberts, another woman, a straight woman, but a woman. And then her her, her producing partner um, is um, a, a Care Price, who is a lesbian woman. So you have a whole bunch of women, literally five executive producers who are all women. Um, and um, so, and, and truly, um, and we are, you know, white and black and Asian and Jewish, like we are uh, quite a hodgepodge within that group. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the showrunner, um, what was important to me, and again, this goes back to the idea of celebrating how you are, how you, you are different than someone. And so if you're going to celebrate that, 
even as a straight woman, I didn't even want it to be a straight woman gaze, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a male gaze if I was concerned yeah. about a straight woman gaze. And, it's and not a that, straight woman you know, gaze at all. It's a lesbian gaze. Like, we were shocked <laughs> watching it. Like, the pantry scene specifically, I'm like, yeah. this is filmed for a lesbian to watch. Very clearly, <laughs> in my perspective. Well, you know, I put together what we jokingly called the Council of Lesbians. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I already spoke about um, Kara, you know, who's who's uh, in my Robert's producing partner. So it was like Kara and Jet and Victoria and our, uh, our first um, assistant director, you know, it was her, it was me. It's so funny, like walking around, even when in the, the set looking around and finding this young PA and I was like, I think she's lesbian and just going, hi, we've never met, but I'm the showrunner. She's like, oh my God, why is the showrunner talking to me? And I'm like, are you lesbian? And she's like, yes. I was like, would you like to join my council of lesbians? <laughs> I had like about 10 women who from, from PA, cause I wanted young, young women too, you know, so like from mm-hmm. PA all the way up to our first assistant director, to our director, you know, to our producers, um, to exa- just people all related to the show coming together and like, let's talk about sex, you know, <laughs> and telling them from yeah. the beginning, I want to make sure that this feels lesbian hot, mm-hmm. not even, you know, um, straight woman going, I think this is what will be hot. I am a woman. I know what feels good to me, but I really wanted that point of view. And everybody was very open. It was funny. Jet, Jet's like, you're making me turn red. Stop it. <laughs> well, these two lesbians very, very much approve. It was a great scene. Yeah, these two lesbians also agree as like a secondary lesbian council that it was well done. And- and can you can you talk a little bit about how so this is a little bit more of the creative process, but can you talk about how an intimacy coordinator like connects into this and how that develops on screen? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I think that um, if you look at in episode four, you know when they're making out at the park at night um, on the night they how run away together. <laughs> yes, so that that was a scene again. But lesbian, the les the council of lesbians got on a big Zoom and talked about it. And then Dr. Tiff, she's there from the beginning before there's any scenes to be shot, and she's there for everyone who has an intimate scene. And the intimate scene could be by yourself, where you're getting dressed, you know, um, in the mirror or whatever. And so she's at, as important in that scene as she was in the scene with Apollo and Eleanor making out in the women's room, you know, at the bar, because it still has to be, um, and this didn't used to be, it was not that long ago, and I'll never forget, I was on a show, the show I created, where one of my stars came to me and said, you need to check in with this particular actress, and I'm like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I always check in and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, but I said, but I'll check in with her. And this was just five years ago. And when I said, hey, I just want to see how you're doing. I know we're shooting this, you know, rape scene and want to see. And I really thought 
I had a great relationship with this this young woman that she would come to me if there was anything. And there was one night they were shooting and I wasn't there because I was trying to get out the next script. And she said the night I wasn't there was the worst night of her life because it was, you know, all men around the set and nobody was there covering her between scenes that she had to lie on the, you know, literally on the grass, in the dirt, basically, Mm -hmm. um, in this clearing. And at one point, somebody was just stepping over her while she was there and her skirt was up because that was, you know, the position Mm -hmm. she needed Mm -hmm. to be in. And I remember thinking that will never, and that happened on a show with a showrunner who cares who thinks that mm-hmm. she's watching, who thinks she's protecting her young women. And I thought then that will, this will never happen again. And it was so horrible. And the actor was horrible to her. And I said, how did you not tell me this when it happened? And she mm-hmm. said, I was, I'm a, I just wanted to do what I was told to do because I didn't want to be fired. That she mm-hmm. still thought that with mm-hmm. me who did everything I just told you about and sitting down at the beginning and checking in every episode, it, we still work in a business where a young woman thought that if she spoke up about a situation where she felt horribly violated, that she could be fired. And yeah. so from there, I started to advocate for, you know, what can we do? And so to you know, and, and to be very vocal about that, because I realized I can't be everywhere at all times and that it needed to start before the moment of shooting the scene. Mm-hmm. And so to five years later, it is pretty standard to have an intimacy coordinator if you're going to have, you know, relationships at the center, particularly, and um, it's now pretty standard. And so I feel very good about that. So for Dr. Tiffany, it starts, she comes to, she gets the scripts early, just like all the actors do. And then we meet and she tells me some areas that she's like, oh, I think I should talk to the actors about this and this and this. Oh, I'll talk to this one about this. I'm like, that all sounds great. So then they feel safe because they're talking to her. She is a, you know, PhD in um, psychology and, and um sexual, uh, sexuality, psychology and sexuality and does, you know, sex therapy in addition. So she knows her shit in other words. And she, you know, so that they can, so then she can come back to me because they've been in a safe space and say, Hey, you know, this one would rather wear boy shorts rather than a thong. And it says in the script, there's a thong or whatever, things like that. And Mm -hmm. this one, you know, she's comfortable with, you know, touching here, but not there. So you know all of that now before you ever shoot. So that information can get to the director. Now the director can direct in a way where the actor feels safe. And you then get better acting because they feel safe. Mm -hmm. Right. They know that you know their limits. They know you know their parameters and that you made an active decision to respect them. And are there times where I'm like, they don't want to do this or that and this? I'm like, oh, okay. Now let me go talk to them because I want to understand why. And if mm-hmm. I have a great relationship, then I might go, but, or let's both of us talk to them together because I want my actors to always feel very, very safe. So yeah. then you get from that to then finally shooting and she, you know, and she's there and I'm like, hey, and she's looking, I'm looking and I can look at her and go, are, are, is everyone still comfortable? 
And she can go, oh, yes, oh, yes. And, you know, she's developed a relationship with him, so she can also so say, hey, you know what? He's got this frown that he doesn't usually have. Do you mind if I step in next time you yell cut and make sure he's okay? I'm like, sure. So it's all of that kind of stuff. And sometimes it can be personal, like you might have a scar or, you know, that you would like us to cover. Sometimes it's that simple, like, you know, he has this scar here he's uncomfortable with. We want to make sure we a lot enough time for makeup to come in and cover that. So we'll need another 20 minutes before. So now you just have more time to pre- to properly prepare. So I love, love, love having um, an intimacy court. Or I should say I love Dr. Tiff. I don't know if all intimacy coordinators are <laughs> as amazing as she is, but for me, I'm like, if I need one, I want it to be her, but hopefully they're <laughs> all as amazing as she is. Cause she is really amazing. Yeah, um, both Sarah Catherine and Imani have both talked about how amazing Dr. Tiff is. So I'm really glad to hear that that's been such a great experience with regards to that, because it is those are intimate moments. And uh, to have everyone see that even if it is a, you know, a character that you're portraying, you want to make sure that that's done in a way that everyone feels safe. And I'm glad to hear that. I did want to ask yeah. you. Um, so we've heard you talk about um, wanting the Burns family to be a rainbow. Um, and with, within the family. And we wondered if there was any particular focus on our leading lady, Calliope, being a darker skinned black woman. Um, because, you know, colorism exists within Hollywood. And we've heard from a lot of listeners of our podcast and fans of the show how very meaningful it is for them to see Imani as Calliope and what that means to mm-hmm. them. Well, you know, and I think we we can, you know, talk about that. And and certainly as a Latina, it's we know colorism in that community too, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. um, you know, so you know what I'm talking about when I talk about there are those like, oh, look at how dark. Even as I, I don't know what you prefer, Latinx versus Latino community, but you know, look at how dark he is darker people, that's bad because that means they, you know, spend all the time in the sun, which means they must have jobs outside. Like it's such, oh, look at how light her skin is. That means they must have money. Like it's all so dumb, right? Mm -hmm. And so yet we know it exists. And what I find in television in general, as television has tried to go, you know, be more inclusive, that it's still in general, white people making the decision. Mm -hmm. And so like all of us, we tend to judge things based on our own experience. So even when going, let's be more inclusive and we need more black people, the black people then tend to meet the European standard of beauty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which means it is mostly fair skin, you know, um, of, uh, blacks, more mixed, you know, interracial blacks. And when you see these characters, particularly if they're chosen by whites. Mm-hmm. So it is was important to me that, and don't get me wrong, it is like made the best actress win. And we saw actresses yeah. uh, for Calliope of every hue. You can imagine a blackness. And, um, but I, I do remember very specifically the saying, and particularly to be frank on Netflix, I'm like, where are the black people who look like black mm-hmm. people? Mm-hmm. And so 
I had hoped that we could find a dark skin, brown skin, you know, chocolate, <laughs> you want to say it, um, dark chocolate. The mocha band, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was my hope. But we, you know, but I didn't know if that would come true. And so, you know, when Amani walks in and I'm like, I wish Calliope could look like that. And then she auditioned and she blew it out of the water. I would never have hired, you know, and obviously it wasn't just me. Like I said, we have five executive producers and we all had a Mm -hmm. vote. So I would never have hired like, oh, she's chocolate, but she can't act. That would Mm -hmm. never have gone over. I would never, you know, uh, do that. It skill has to come first, you know. So, but that was the hope that um, dark skin girls, rather dark skin for blacks, dark skin for Latinos, dark skin for, you know, South Asians, whatever that is, like, I would hope that we could see ourselves. I know that that was what I was hoping for. And then we got it in her. So it was certainly my personal hope. It wasn't something I voiced, by the way. And mm. I think that as we saw girls come in, you know, and it 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 is was interesting to see who I thought, you know, this one is beautiful. This one is versus the white producers, mm-hmm. you know. So it was all very interesting. But it was, I never said that because I didn't want it to color what our casting director thought we were looking for or what our other producers like, Oh, is Felicia going to like this one? Cause she doesn't look a certain way. I just like, I kept it to myself and said, this is my hope, but I didn't yeah. want it to color for anyone, the experience of casting, you know, the other producers of the casting process. I actually, I had mentioned this to Katie prior to, as we prepared for this, and and I don't know that I'll keep this in the podcast, but I just want you to share it with you, which is, I was hesitant to ask this question because I was concerned about what the reception will be when people listen to the answer, because that's absolutely what I don't want, is I don't want people to take away from this and think, oh, well, Imani got cast because she's darker skinned, because so often people associate that with, you know, like the best person didn't get the job, but Sometimes it can be both. It can be the best person. It can be both. Also. And yes, no, it, um, yes, I hope that you do keep it in. And, um, I'm glad that you did ask it because it is my, it is for me, you know, that my truth, like I said, it was my personal hope because certainly growing up, I didn't see girls who looked like me, you know, and certainly I think about girls now who you see it even in, um, you know, in commercial ads and television where there are commercial ads, there's a lot of, and again, when the, in the goal to be more inclusive, you see a lot of ads now with, um, you know, families that are interracial families. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you see the black mom and the white dad or vice versa, or, you know, some other mix. And therefore all the kids look like that. Mm-hmm. You know, look like they're the mixed kids. And my concern is like, well, what about, you know, the, the kids who, and and then, of course, puts those kids closer to, again, a European standard of beauty. And therefore, you worry about what, but what about the kids who don't look like that, who need to see themselves on television, who need to believe that they can do anything that they um, want to do? 
and I also was important to me like, okay, well, if you start with Calliope looking like Amani, then what do her parents look like? And I became obsessed with it because I've also seen so many of these shows where you're like, those could not possibly be the parents or those kids could not possibly be the children of those parents. It always made me crazy growing up. And and my (laughs) sisters are always go, I'm out of this show because I don't believe anything because those parents could not have had those kids. (laughs) So that was important to us too. So once it was Calliope, and um, and then next uh, was um, Aubin Weiss, who plays Talia. So if Talia is her mom, you know, this very fair-skinned woman, then you're like, okay, so Calliope is dark chocolate, and now her mom is very fair-skinned. So what must that dad look like? You know, mm-hmm. so, like, right. oh, that dad has to be chocolate as well. <laughs> you know, so we just yeah. believe that these are her parents. So that was, you know, absolutely a part of my thinking. I don't think anyone else was that worried about it among the other producers. But as the only black producer, it was something that was, you know, in my mind. And again, luckily, I already had Jason Moore in my mind for for Jack Byrne. Um, Jason and I worked together on The Punisher and really worked well together, you know, and I liked working with him. And then I did a short and he was kind enough to come and act in that short for free. So we had an ongoing professional relationship. And um, I was like, oh, Jack Burns is Jason. You know, he, yeah, he he's is. got that sort of presence and that gravitas. And, um, you know, you believe him in this kind of a role who is strong and confident enough to be okay with this strong and confident uh, wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. um, you know, was glad like he just happened to look the you know, way I hoped he would look. But, yeah. you know, I called him up because of our professional relationship. Yeah. And it's so and and what you're talking about now is something that I've just loved about First Kill the whole time is this is a not a black family created for white people. This is a black family created to be authentic <laughs> on television in genre television that is supposed to be consumed by, you know, a mainstream audience, not for a particular person, you know, and mm-hmm. it's so refreshing to watch and so engaging and entertaining and all of those things entertainment is supposed to be as well. Yes, I, I really, you know, that was part of the fun of the show really is just leaning into, you know, certainly I'm not saying that all black people are monolithic, but wanting to lead into what, how a black mom might a typical, if you will, a typical black mom might handle, you know, her kids not following her instructions and and compare that and contrast that with what Juliet, you know, what Juliet's experience would be coming from a white upper class family and how she and it's just traditionally so or historically so where, you know, that kid has more agency in her life and can express herself and gets to be part of the decision-making about her life and to express herself to her parents is not something that is, is something that is normal. And then contrast that with Calliope's experience where she says something to her mom and her mom's like, wait, what did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> and so it is very, you know, traditional, but it, and it comes from a place of, you know, historical 
significance where there was a time, you know, for blacks and black children to even look at a white person the wrong way. And as we know, it could and did cost you your life. And so black mothers were used to saying, shut up, don't speak, don't look, because it was their way of saving their child's life. And so coming from that history, black children haven't always been had the same agency in their relationships with their parents because you did what you were told because your parent was saving your life. And so we still have a bit of that. And, mm-hmm. um, and of course, Aubin was able to grasp it and just kill it. Every moment of it yes. that she was on screen was just pure joy. Oh, she's she embodied that character for sure. Um, so, she? <laughs> yes, yeah. she's incredible. We're we're obsessed with Aubin now, of course, as everyone should be. Um, I but, agree. So, I am obsessed <laughs> with her as well. <laughs> um, so this lesbian ship is intense, um, which is our podcast name. And I was laughing during. I the love meeting. that name, by the way. <laughs> I was like, if I don't say anything else in the time we're together, I have to remember to say that. And I I almost forgot to say that. I love that. I was like, <laughs> oh, I have to talk to them just on the name. I have to talk to them. <laughs> yeah. um, we have to give credit to um, uh, the, uh, one of the writers from The Bold Type. She wrote in that show, This Lesbian Shit mm-hmm. is Intense. Um, uh-huh. And that was. Her. Yeah, so we have to give credit to her because. Um, the, the podcast name evolved from that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yes, yes. A shout out there for that because I love that title. <laughs> um, and so I was laughing during the uh, Meet the Fairmont space with when with Black women when they were like, it's a Kaliat movement because they have truly <laughs> taken hold to the to the heights of lesbian ships. Like they are a big one right now that people have really latched onto and Obviously, when you casted Sarah Catherine and Imani, you saw the chemistry, and this is what you hoped would happen. But as mm-hmm. you're watching the show develop over eight episodes, what were you seeing between them that really stood out where you're like, people are going to love them. People are going to be obsessed with them. You know what? It was really, I think that they were, you know, as uh, actresses and as human beings, they were completely committed to each other from the beginning. And so because that's where they started, that just grew there. You know, I I remember specifically there was a a thing that was asking, um, the director was asking Imani to do in a scene. And I was like, God, that's not like her. She usually gets it perfectly. And she's not in the couple. I was like, something's going on. Right. And then, um, and then speaking with Sarah Catherine, she didn't like the response that she was getting. She was worried about, you know, what does it look like in that moment? And I was like, aha, I see what Imani's doing. She's having Sarah Catherine's back no matter what. And so that's why she's not quite giving me what I want because Sarah Catherine isn't quite comfortable. And I loved that their commitment to each other was that deep. Of course, I still needed what I needed. So I had to talk to them both and say, this is why we're doing this. This is what has to happen. This is, but I love that it wasn't just lip service to a commitment to each other. 
they really were committed to each other. So for me, it was like nothing to get mad at. It's a thing to understand so that you can make them understand why this, you know, it's important <laughs> that we get what we need in that moment. Because for them, you know, they're just holding the that episode they're shooting in their heads. And I'm holding the whole season and knowing where we're going in my head. So I'm like, if I have to make them understand where we're going so that they'll know why this moment is important. It was just that simple. But I think watching them, that commitment, you know, seeing them, uh, meeting them from our first photo shoot that we did a photo shoot in the cemetery. And I was like, I've got to post some of these photos that we didn't have any reason to ended up not using, but they're beautiful. I'm going to probably mm-hmm. post some of those um, this, this week, in fact, because they're just wonderful. This amazing <laughs> photo shoot done by our, our first um, uh, cinematographer. Um, you just grabbed a camera, grabbed the two girls and went to, to the cemetery. And it, it just came out beautifully, but we ended up the not really romantic. Yeah, I only used two <laughs> of them in the main titles. It's the only place that we ended up using them. So I'll share them. But I just think that was it, you know, just seeing their, you know, commitment to each other and then just getting to know each other better and better. So you saw lots of laughing, giggling, being silly, you know, so you could just see like, oh, they're just getting closer as just friends, as human beings. And that then, of course, shows on screen because they trust each other. Mm-hmm. so in those yeah. things and then when they're again if there was something they're like can we talk to you about this can we talk to Mike always so I think because they were you know sort of soldiers in this same army on the same side uh I think that it makes them trust each other more in every episode so that's what I was seeing mostly what I was seeing was how close they were growing um, and how much they were committed to each other doing the best job that they could do. And that was just very, very, very cool. So by the time we get to the end of the season, they're like, you're not going to break us up, are you? Like, they really, like, <laughs> like what would that be? How are we going to, like, what was in season two? I'm like, you'll just have to wait and see. They started asking that question by episode six. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Of course I know. <laughs> That's hilarious because my next question is about like, I know that we're waiting for, you know, that renewal and obviously you don't want to give everything away, but with Cal and Juliet being star-crossed lovers and we end the season with them being crossed, um, is there anything Mm -hmm. that you could hint at for what your thoughts are as to how we can get them back to being, you know, on, on good terms? Lovers, if you will. interesting. I don't know because... (laughs) I don't know if that's the goal or certainly the immediate goal because of a relationship, right? And you look at the whole arc of a relationship, um, they're good times and they're bad. Um, you know, so what happens? And it's also at its core still a family drama. You know, it's a family genre drama. So if they're not together, then, you know, their families have been like truce because of our daughters. Well, if their daughters aren't together, the hell happens to that truce. (laughs) So there's so much to, you know, explore. And I love the idea of going, wow, we took them far, like you said, cross their far field. They're very far apart. So what would that journey look like that could ever get them back together? What does that look like? That's very exciting to me because if you're in and out of place, someone's like, I will spend the rest of my existence 
trying to figure out how to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, how's that going to work? <laughs> yeah, that's an, that's an intense kind of breakup. <laughs> Luckily, luckily for us, they're still connected by their dreams. We were like, watch Calliope, like, not sleep because Juliet's haunting her dreams or something, you know? Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I couldn't wait to get the writers back together, you know, because everyone's going to have such amazing ideas. Like, it's amazing writing staff, and um, I can't wait. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I most look forward to is like, come on, Netflix, because I can't wait to be back in a writer's mm-hmm. room with those amazingly talented uh, writers. And so to to kind of wrap up here, I think as we've discussed, V and I both feel like sky is the limit with potential for first kill with the lore of the vampires, the lore of the guild and the family mm-hmm. drama, plus the relationship drama alone with Juliet and Calliope at like, at 20, not even just a 10 as we end the season, um, there's so much to explore. And we're like, give us our five season pickup. We're de- we're past one Netflix book, <laughs> five seasons in a movie. Um, but, five season pickup. <laughs> it's never been done before, but we want it. Um, <laughs> but um, so, but for you as a showrunner, like what is the core of the show moving forward, no matter what happens on the ins and outs of each episode, like for your general vision, what are the most important elements for you that will remain in a season two for the show? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think that, you know, and also, again, the, the goal is also to grow the audience, right? So I think at the very core, we will always be exploring this epic family drama, like, you know, this age-old Capulets versus the Montagues, and what people are willing to do to uh, destroy another and how that can sometimes destroy you. Mm, So that will always be, you know, I think where the show goes. And then at the center of that, you will have these two girls who, from the moment they met, um, had this strong connection that is undeniable. So whether or not they are, you know, things are well, and, you know, there are some people I'm sure who would go, I'd just like to see them happy for a little while. So, you know, so I think that they will always be, you know, our anchor, if you will. Uh, those the, the relationship, I should say, will always anchor the show as we look at the broader thing. Who are they in their families? Who are they when you think about it? They are both, it's a coming of age story for both of them. So mm-hmm. what happens when um, the guild starts to eye Calliope? Mm-hmm. What happens if so crushed Juliet now says I accept who I am and is a little bit more like Eleanor would Calliope still love a version of Juliet that is like Eleanor would Juliet love a version of Calliope is more hunter than she is lover Mm -hmm. so it will be very interesting to see as they grow do they still maintain the the center of what made them love each other and then asking our questions then for the family 
who, you know, you're making again, a swoon, Felicia. Off, you're making a swoon over here. <laughs> <laughs> for the families, if the gloves are off, what does that mean? And how does that affect Savannah? Yeah. Oh I mean, we're God. so excited for a season two because really this can go in so many ways. And like Katie said, like we're here just kind of like geeking out, thinking about <laughs> all the ways it can go. Yes. <laughs> and never God. forget, like, and what happens. And this, and this is, like I said, the thing that is is embodied in Theo's journey, but it is a big show um theme too what happens if you become the thing that you hate mm-hmm. right yeah definitely uh yeah that's no, all it's very fascinating yeah, <laughs> yeah it's simple so question. interesting and it's like we had <laughs> you know with a not simple answer <laughs> exactly i mean we have so many theories about you know calliope and juliet being the chosen ones to save the world you know we've come up with just about everything <laughs> So. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and we will <laughs> that in the future, we will be getting deeper into the mythology. I love mythology and we will right. be getting deeper in, you know, into the mythology of it all. And I think that, um, you know, as, like you said, as we wrap it up, um, one of the, we still struggle with people, um, finishing the season. And so I know that, um, I hesitate to say that because I don't want to get started just angry dialogue. Our facts are, right. we, yes, those of us who've watched it, I'm one of them. I probably watched this show 10 times all the way through because I enjoy it that much. And then I'm like, I want to watch it for this reason this time. You know what? And then I'll get with a different group of friends who are like, we want to watch it with you. So we'll, then I'll go and I have some friends who have a party to watch it. So I've watched it a lot, but they're not really checking for us who watched it 10, 15 times. We're looking for people who either haven't finished because the way they see it, if you don't finish, if you, if you try it out but don't finish, then that means you're not interested in how it would go forward. That's the way the algorithm right. works in, for them. So we still need people to complete it. Or secondarily, to find new people who haven't seen it. I found that a lot while we were at Comic-Con um, doing our autograph session, that there were people who still didn't know. And you think, oh, wow, it's, you know, Netflix, they have 190 million, you know, mm-hmm. uh, accounts across the world. But that is not the same as going, so therefore 190 million people had an opportunity. Because if it's not what you're looking for, it's not what you're looking for. So I was... It was interesting to go there and, um, you know, and we had a big old poster and we put the CR code to, you know, go right to it. And people were going, I have not watched this. And people were starting to watch it even that weekend at Comic-Con or people, I would meet people at different booths and they're like, what do you do? What do you do? That kind of thing. And they go, oh, I haven't watched it. So, and I would give me opportunity then to say to them, oh, I hope you will enjoy it. I'd love to hear what you think of the end. Because we still need people, if you know, to new people to discover it and watch it to the end, or people who tried it out and haven't are finishing it more slowly, whatever. We need those people because that's what will impress Netflix at this point. I'm going to go text all my cousins right now and be like, Have you watched it yet? <laughs> yeah, we've yes. been getting new people on, so we're, we're trying <laughs> to do that. And and we'll make sure we, we keep the message loud and clear like, the interest is alive and well for this show. 
So I hope you enjoyed that wonderful conversation with the Felicia D. Henderson. We left that interview truly like amazed by her approach to this industry and how she navigates her work. Yeah, I I thought it was just really great to have this kind of like insider perspective, you know, like, especially because like me, I feel like I still don't understand a lot about how the industry works and like who's who and like what people do exactly. So like talking to Felicia one just makes me feel really cool because like right. I can't believe I'm talking to a showrunner. Uh, but then two, she's funny and cool and chill and all of these wonderful things and knowledgeable, obviously. And she, she gladly like shares that with us. So, uh, it was just, it was just a really great experience. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's another experience that I think we both will truly cherish, uh, the time that she gave us the wonderful conversations that she gave us and um we did have the opportunity to just have a brief chat with her after the cancellation um simply because she knew this episode was going to come out and we talked before it was canceled obviously we didn't get to do a full recording with her because like we said she has covid and she didn't really have the energy to be able to to get into things with us but um obviously she is disappointed that the show is canceled she really loves it if you couldn't tell from the interview <laughs> oh that is something i really love is like the actors felicia like everyone they love it as much as we do and like that is palpable so we all are tremendously disappointed and upset yeah so she needs some time to recover from covid And so I think when she's able to get her bearings a little bit, get, you know, a little bit healthier, I think she'll be speaking more next week um, into the weekend. She said she wants to keep sharing some stuff about First Kill that she already had prepared. So um, just keep an eye out for that. You know, give her some time to rest and recuperate and then and then she'll share more with us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, we, we are not done talking about First Kill, whether, you know, like, we're not done with our uh, recaps and reviews. We're not done talking about it on Twitter. I'm not ready to give up on this fucking show because, because, because bullshit. Like, I just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna turn, go to the dark place right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've been, we've been in the dark place for a little bit about it. But, you know, I do want to say thank you to all of you that did participate in the Twitter space that we held the night it was canceled. We knew we were really upset. So we wanted to give everybody an outlet because we have each other to process Mm -hmm. this. And I think we both feel very lucky that we do have that to let some of our feelings out. So we wanted to give everybody a space and... It was truly meaningful to hear how people all over the world, literally all over the world, there were there were a lot of people grieving and sharing how much they loved this show, and that felt really special to be a part of. I'm glad that we had that time to grieve together, but 
since then, I have felt reinvigorated to fight. And so I'm not ready to say my goodbyes. I'm not ready to give into that sadness. I am going to turn it into action. Um, and, you know, the action that I have, which is on social media. So I'm just going to keep talking about first kill, you know, whenever I'm not being bogged down by work. <laughs> so I know. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're talking about first kill still. So I hope you stick around and have a good time with us. And I hope you keep fighting for first kill too with us. I mean, that's what we're here to do for a little bit. You can keep the conversation going with us on Twitter at this lesbian shit on Instagram at this lesbian ship. And then please rate review and download our episodes on Spotify and Apple podcasts. All right. Bye guys. Bye. This lesbianship is intense is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.